It's an honor to be here with you this morning. When Dr. Young called and asked me to fill in a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know that I would have the double honor and privilege of following Les Newsom and Ronnie Stevens. Forgot to mention that part. Discuss that when he gets back. Uh, my name is Randy Ray. For a lot of y'all that I don't know, we served here. We left here 10 years ago almost. We worked here for 15 years ago. Chris Luke was in my fourth grade boys Sunday school class when we started. <laughs> if that like, gives you any reference point. Um, I've been married to my wife, Sherry, for 20 years. We have three kids, 17, 14, and we have a three-year-old. So let that settle in. Um, <clears throat> that's us. We left here to plant a church in Corinth, Mississippi, um, and then God called us to Madison, Mississippi. That's where we are now, where I'm the senior pastor. Madison, Mississippi is a lot like Germantown. Our church is a lot like yours. Basically, everything you did, I stole and went and tried to reproduce. So it's Grace Savan, but like 25 years ago. I'm the old one now, so that's what makes it what it is. Uh, I told this the first hour, and I'll tell you the same thing. I did not want to bring this sermon. I didn't want to preach this sermon. Um, I know that always sounds good to hear out of the gate. We are going through the book of John. And um, when you're the visiting preacher, you always bring like one of your really good ones where, you know, you just stroked one over the fence so that people will be impressed with you. That's what you do because we are more insecure than you are. We have to fake it all the time because preachers are so insecure. That's the truth. And so there was one that I was going to bring that I was like, that one went pretty good. And they all liked that one. And God was like, "Mm mm-mm. Um, And he kept bringing me back to this one and would not let me get away from it. And so I've learned by trying to circumvent that process a couple of times, you don't beat him. You don't win. And so that's the one we're going to get. One of the reasons why I love the Bible, and I think you do too, is that it's true and it's life and it speaks um, truth to some of the most difficult situations in our lives. The Bible doesn't hide from them. The Bible doesn't shield us from them. The Bible, a lot of times, will move you straight into the middle of controversy and scandal and difficulty and complexity and then make no apologies for taking you there as well. Doesn't hide from them. I love that about scripture. The setting of the text we're gonna look at, it's a very famous chapter, John chapter nine. We're only gonna look at the first four verses. We spent, I think, six weeks when we were in John chapter nine. The the man born blind that Jesus makes the mud and puts it on his eye. We're not gonna get to any of that. Um, all you're going to do is, is meet the man. Um, but there are, there are many aspects of suffering. There's one that we're going to see in the text, and I'm going to show you in a minute. But our lives are ridden with different forms of suffering. A lot of people struggle with emotional and, and psychological suffering and things that were traced back to things that happened to you in your life. Some things you had control over, some things that you don't. There's physical suffering and illness that, that some of us struggle with. Some are temporary, and, and some of us have come to the realization that the thing that we struggle with is not going away this side of heaven. That's just the way it's going to be. And I don't want to diminish either of those, and, and the whole text isn't what we're going to talk about. You just see it in there. But there's one type of suffering that, that I think would be the hardest. I, I haven't been called to deal with this yet. Some of you probably have. I think the most difficult type of suffering is when it comes to our kids, especially when it comes to our kids who have disabilities or special needs that will be present for the entirety of their lives. That's the setting of the text. I want to read you something in a minute. Um, I am not a good sufferer. My spiritual gift is not pain and suffering. I'm horrible at it. 
And so every time something is portioned out before us, the first thing that I will do is wrestle with God and ask him why. I think, I think we have the freedom as believers to do that, reverentially, but at the same time, in a very real fashion to say, God, why? We didn't choose this. We didn't sign up for this. And if we believe in your sovereignty as we do, then in one form or another, you're responsible for this. You allowed this at least to happen. And then at some point for the redeemed, the gospel will turn that into, where is grace in this? Why has God portioned this particular lot out for us and for our children? And that's where you find a proper theology of suffering. I want to read you something from um, Bethlehem Baptist, John Piper's church. They get it right. And then we'll jump to the text. This is a portion of the mission statement um, to their families that have children that have special needs and disability. And there are a couple of phrases in here that I want to go back to when we look at the text. So that's, that's why I'm reading it to you. Just Try your best to absorb this because it is everything against your flesh. Our vision is that Bethlehem would display the supremacy of God in disability and suffering. We want our lives to reflect an unshakable joy in the Lord that allows us to embrace a life of suffering and disability for his purpose and glory. We want to shout that life with a disability and with Jesus is infinitely better than a healthy body without him. We say with Paul that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We want this to be true as individuals as in the church body. Is disability hard? As fathers of children with rare disabling conditions, we can attest to the struggles that men in particular face when their child has a disability. Disability is expensive, financially, emotionally, relationally, It seems neither light nor momentary. The male myth of self-determination, control, and independence is exploded in the face of needing to turn to medical professionals, social workers, and educators on issues we never dreamed of facing. To this we say, thank you. Thank you, God, for not allowing us to live the lie that there is anything good or worthwhile in this life apart from you. Thank you for showing us how much we need you. The struggles our wives face are perhaps even deeper. Did you hear any of that? to display the supremacy of God and disability and suffering and a wanting to reflect the unshakable joy in the Lord that allows us to embrace a life of suffering and disability for his purpose and glory, I'll raise my hand and ask the question that everybody in the class wants to ask. How? How are we supposed to do that? Whether it be in disability or suffering or Or you just now realizing that life didn't plan out the way you thought it would. And it's probably not going to change. Where do you find the unshakable joy in the Lord that will allow us to embrace this for his purpose and glory? Y'all, for that to happen, 
We have to have a proper theology of suffering and by grace, beloved, if you can cling to it. By faith, if you can cling to it with all of your might, it'll set you free. I want to show it to you. If you got your Bible, stand together with me. We're in John chapter 9. The first four verses. This is only the setting to the man born blind. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Standing out of reverence for God and his word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray briefly. Father, I got nothing for your people this morning. Nothing, nothing that I can give. But there is nothing that won't meet their needs that's found in the scriptures. Would you hide a fool, a vile fool like me? And would you unstop their ears? And would you open their hearts? And would you let the grace of your word set them free? Even when it comes to suffering. You're going to have to do that because there's nothing in our flesh that can produce it. We ask that you would because it would make Jesus look glorious in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I just want you to see two things um, in the text. The first one is, is kind of hard, but it makes the second one beautiful. So once we make our way through the hard one, the second one is just, is, will make you want to dance in the aisles, even though you're semi-Presbyterians. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, here's the first thing we see in the text. The relationship of sin to suffering. And you you have to get this. All suffering in the main was due to Adam's sin. That's the truth. If Adam would have obeyed the covenant of works, there would have been no suffering, there would have been no pain, there would have been no death because he kept it. It would have all been glorious, but he broke it. So in one sense, all sin can be attributed to the covenant of works being broken and sin entering into the fall. Now, look at verse one. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It's one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. Did you see it? Look at it again. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. You know what that's a picture of? The gospel. That's us. If you want to see yourself in the narrative, it's, it's beautiful how it unfolds throughout the rest of chapter 9. The blind, helpless man whose eyes don't work, who can't see Jesus, who can't move towards Jesus, who can't choose Jesus, is the blind man. The scriptures go on to say it's worse that we're actually dead. We can't even want to see him. This man cannot move towards Jesus. Jesus has to initiate. Jesus has to move towards him, which is what he does. He's passing by. Jesus sees with his eyes a man born blind. There is no way to heal that if you're not Jesus. Nobody's ever been healed that was born blind. It's the worst of the worst. It's the hopeless of the hopeless, just like us. Isn't it beautiful? It's us. He's been blind from birth. He has the life-altering disability of blindness. This is someone's son. And so the disciples ask this question. It's a legitimate question in verse two. 
His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Don't raise your hand that you've done this, right? I've done this. Um, you see somebody that's, that's suffering immensely, and in the back of my mind, th- there will be a moment where I wonder, I wonder what they did. Like, like what, did they, what did they do to get this? Like, that's the Pharisee in me that will still, I would never say it because I've got a degree now, but it goes inside. I'm asking that question a lot of times. What happened? That's what the disciples are saying. If sin causes then God, is this, is this suffering punishment for his sin or his parents' sin? Fair question. All right, we have to say this before you get out and, and live like a pagan and, and say that Randy Ray told you you could. That's not true. Um... Can suffering be a result of personal sin? Survey says, yes. Is it always a result of personal sin? Survey says, no. Look, we'll love you. You can be in the kingdom. We'll talk about it in heaven. Um, Let's say that at like age 11, you decided to smoke. I don't even think anybody smokes anymore. But if you did... Um, you decided to smoke because that was a cool thing to do. And like you ended up smoking a carton of cigarettes a day and now you're 83 and we're visiting you at Baptist and you have lung cancer. Fine. You did that. Like you brought that on yours. Every time you looked at the box and had to, you were like, eh, I don't know. That's on you. That's great. But you, you cannot whine and complain in the hospital room about bearing your cross and your suffering. That one's on you. There are a multitude of other things that we could go through and go, okay, this produces this and, and, and we're not. But I don't want you to be confused and think, well, then that means, um, you know, I've, I've kind of got to, it's not like that. You have to understand there is suffering that can be traced to personal sin. But that is not the case in this text. Whose fault was it, his or his parents? I mean, how could it be his? He's an infant born blind. Um, perhaps speculating, um, his mother was worshiping at a pagan temple and he was in the womb and he was a part of that. And now this is punishment for that sin. We, we, we don't know. Or perhaps his parents were just bad people and this is what they got. They were immoral and, um, they didn't, they were rarely at church and you know, they, they didn't, they were horrible and this is what you got in this was the this was their punishment. It's their fault. Hey, just quickly, where would they come up with that? This um, don't turn here. This is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You know what Exodus 20 is, the Ten Commandments? This is your God saying this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Oh, that's a really fair question, isn't it? Hey, did the parents sin? And is this an example of like Exodus 20 where he's punishing the parents' sin out on the children? I mean, God said that he might do that. It's all over the Old Testament. This is what we have going on in the text so far. They're asking Jesus, look, whose fault is it, A or B? 
And Jesus responds with C. In this case, it's neither one. This is not due to the sin of the parents or due to the sin of the infant. Listen to what John Stott says here. This is, remember this. When the nights get dark and long, remember this. The scriptures as a whole allow a general relationship between sin and suffering due to the fall. It refuses, though, to permit the principle to be individualized in every single case. We were in New Orleans over the summer. We were actually there Thursday night for the U2 concert, which was just, I mean, the the second thing that you're going to get closest to the Lord in terms of worship besides church is at a U2 concert. I just, I promise you, it's in the Apocrypha somewhere. Just look it up. Um... We love New Orleans. It's like less than three hours from our house. It's our playground. We were there earlier in the summer, and one of my favorite things to do is to get up and run. I mean, you, you can see how fit I am. Um, so I'll get up and run, and, and I run up and down the river, and, and you just you see so much, and it's so eclectic, and there's, you know, there's homelessness, and there's poverty, and you're talking to these people as you're running. And, and so in the summer, it was really hot, and I was on my way back to the hotel, and I started walking down the street because of the heat, and and I, there was this man on the right, and he had a, his shirt was off, and he had a paper sack with a bottle out of it. He had jeans on. And I mean, he was like the perfect silhouette, you know, of like a crime scene tape that's on the ground. And whatever happened last night, it ended right there. I mean, that was it. And um, the sun's coming up through the buildings, and you can kind of see the, the silhouette moving up his body. And I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm studying this, so I'm thinking more redemptively than I would have at the time. And I'm wondering, and then about that time, this man steps out of an alley right in front of me and begins to walk in front of me, and he's got on all white and gold jewelry. And I'm like, where do you go at seven in the morning dressed like that in New Orleans? And then I thought, I bet that's from the night before. Um, And so he's walking, and he keeps looking over his shoulder, like probably to make sure that I'm not gonna rob him. And um, he looks at this guy, and kind of pauses and keeps going, and then he, he keeps going, and then he turns around and looks at me, and he goes, so, I guess that's where it all ends up. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to not speak at that moment, but I'm thinking to myself, maybe, maybe. But I'll tell you what I don't know, and I'll tell you what you don't know, is how many pieces of the puzzle to his life had to fall into the place to get him there. And let me tell you something, white suit man with all your gold jewelry. If God were to remove his restraining grace for one day and line up the same pieces of the puzzle before you and before me, we would both be laying right next to him. You have no idea what happened to get him there. No idea. In a proper theology of suffering, we understand that Adam's sin brought suffering upon all humanity, but we are not at liberty to individualize that in terms of responsibility in every single case that we meet. We're not, and we do it all the time. Sin has produced a suffering world, but an individual's personal suffering is not always attributable to his or her own personal sin. Here's some good news for you and for me. I need it more than you do, so just listen to me absorb it. 
There is grace for us to love people before we judge people. And there's a lot of grace for some of us to stop the guilt that we hold upon ourselves as if we could have just done something differently to present prevent the suffering that we endure, whether it's our kids or whether it's us. And let me tell you something this morning, beloved. You can thank Jesus for that liberation because he will not let you imprison yourself to it. He doesn't. There's nothing that you could have done differently to prevent it because he's sovereign. We bow to the good, we bow to the bad. He's sovereign or he's not. John Calvin, who we like a lot, said that we must be careful not to push our inquiries with suffering into a hurried place and place ourselves into dreadful gulfs. That's what we do when we start wondering, I wonder what, I wonder what, I wonder why, I wonder how. We must be careful of judging anyone a great sinner because they're a great sufferer. All right, that's the relationship of sin to suffering. There's a generality in which all suffering was due to the sin of the fall, but we can't individualize every case of suffering in particular sin. We can't. All right, here's the good news. The relationship of the gospel to suffering. And this changes everything. If there's grace to feast on this, this changes everything. And this is what I think enables us to display the supremacy of God in disability and in suffering and in cancer and in whatever it is and wanting to reflect the unshakable joy in the Lord. It's the rest of the way Jesus answers in verse three. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Mm, That is a hard verse to swallow, isn't it? In this particular case, He was born blind, and his parents aren't responsible, and he's not responsible. So who is then? Here comes the answer from Jesus himself. They want to talk about cause, and Jesus answers with talking about purpose and destiny. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Who's responsible? Who's responsible for this child's disability? There are few people that will say this. And you will not be free until you can accept it. You know who's responsible? God is. And you want me to tell you something else? He has a purpose for it. He has a design for it. He doesn't do anything without a purpose or without a design, even when it comes to pain and suffering. The sovereign creator over all things who knows and knits us together just as he delights in the womb, each and every one of us, disability or not, he is the one who forms and fashions and said this back in Exodus 4. Don't turn. We're trying to hurry. Exodus 4, 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? I was at a funeral of a friend's one time and um, this pastor right out of the gate stands up and says, look, I just want y'all to know something. God had nothing to do with this. 
And I wanted to stand up and say, what did you just say? You're going to tell a room full of mourning people that their hope is that God had nothing to do with this? He had everything to do with it. You don't think that God could have done whatever is necessary with the chromosomes in the womb in this man's life to make sure that his eyes could have seen and prevented the blindness? Of course he could have. You don't think he could have removed whatever pain that you struggle with or that your kids struggle with? Of course he could have, but he didn't in order to display his glory. What? How can that be loving? That the works of God might be displayed in him, all right? Here's what we know about this man. I made him blind because my son is going to heal him of his blindness and in doing so prove that he is indeed the light of the world and that the kingdom has arrived and that the blind now see like Isaiah prophesied it would be. That's why I made him blind. I will glorify myself by way of healing his eyes. It wasn't due to anyone's sin. God did this and will use it for his glory. Does that mean that he's going to heal you? Does that mean that you can name it and claim it and that, that, that hey, we heard this sermon last Sunday and God's going to heal your kids? Is that, can, you, can you use this verse for that? Uh-uh. You know what you can use? That the works of God might be displayed in him. That is a universalism. When it comes to sin and suffering in the gospel, it's a platform for God's glory. He is ordained, He is permitted, He is allowed whatever it is that you're struggling with. And He does so for His glory. He doesn't make any mistakes, y'all. Not a, he's never made one. And He hasn't made one with you. Ultimate suffering can only have ultimate meaning in its relationship to God and His glory. Here, it's going to be a healing, but it's not always that. And here's something that we fail to realize. There are far more majestic works than healing, right? Healing might be what we want the most, but that's not always the most miraculous work in our soul, is it? Remember when Paul begged God in 2 Corinthians 12? I mean, if anybody ought to get what they asked for, it's Paul. Paul begs God three times, please, please, please take this thing away from me. And what does God say? No. Paul, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it in you because, because my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Mm. If he doesn't heal, if he doesn't remove the suffering, if he doesn't heal the disability, he does something even more miraculous, even deeper in me, that's much more difficult than to produce than a healing. He teaches me that knowing him in the fullness of his grace and the wonder of his love is more desirable and more excellent and more wonderful than the removal of the present suffering. And I experience his greatness in my weakness that I would have never known had he taken away the suffering. It is the sweetest place to be, but it is so hard to get there. When you can say from the depths of your soul, 
And that he normally uses suffering to produce this. I don't know that I've ever seen him do it in prosperity. It's when you can say from the depths of your soul that Jesus is enough. You can take the sickness. You can take the marriage. You can take the health away from me. You can take the money. You can take the kids. As long as I have you. Because if you remove you, then my soul dies. I can't live with it. There's no life without you. You are enough. God is a beautiful place to be able to sing that. And you usually sing it when he has stripped you of everything else and there's nothing left. Though he slay me, I still love. There's nowhere else to go. You would have never ended up there if it weren't for a miraculous work in the soul. So here's what it produces in verse four. Here's our kind of application. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Okay? Jesus tells them in the face of suffering, we must work the works of the one who sent me, the father. For Jesus, that's gonna be to heal this man's blindness. That's not our work. But let me tell you what we can do and will do as the church universal in the spirit of this verse. Our work in the gospel is to move towards suffering and not away from suffering. That's the gospel calling upon our lives in relation to suffering. We move towards it and not away from it from fear of being uncomfortable. I always hear people say, I would love to go to the hospital, but I just don't know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say something wrong. You probably are. And they're going to forgive you and love you that you came in their pain. I asked David Shea if I could say this earlier, and he told me yes. Um, I'll never forget when Stuart went to be with the Lord, and we were on David Shea's patio um, one afternoon years ago, and I remember he looked at me, and his eyes had been red from days of crying, and he said, he said, hey, Randy, I want to tell you something that nobody's going to teach you in seminary. I said, hit me. He said, um, he said, when you show up in pain and grief like this, I don't want a verse, and I don't want a book. I just want people to come sit around me and cry. We can do that. If we got resources, let's give them away. If we got nothing else, let's find the ones that are broken and hurting and move towards them. And if it means one afternoon, bringing them a cup of Starbucks to the, to the, to the business office or to the, to the hospital, just sit down and cry with them. Move towards their suffering. What Jesus is ultimately saying is that his life is about to end. Night is coming when no one can work and it's referring to his death. For us, it means don't be idle, don't be lazy, don't become self-absorbed while those around us are suffering because once you die, you can't. But Jesus is ultimately saying this. He's looking at the disciples and saying, gentlemen, I got a few more months to be with you in this capacity. Soon I will be done with my healing work And then I'm going to begin my dying work at the cross. My relieving of suffering will come to an end when I myself become the sufferer at Calvary. And on one day, all of my people will be delivered from sin and suffering and death forevermore. Because I will enter into the ultimate suffering for them. 
My suffering will result in the removal of the Father's wrath from them and the removal of sin from them and the removal of guilt from them and the removal of condemnation from them. And I will deliver them from death and I will provide righteousness forevermore because the healer will become the sufferer. That's the gospel. All right, so who sinned? With the man was born blind. Ultimately, I did. And you did. And Adam did. We all did. But God's grace is so radical. It is so overwhelming. It is so wild that he can use sin and suffering for his glory. And it is most displayed at the cross where the Son of God would die in order to deliver all of his own from sin and suffering unto the life to come forevermore. He has a purpose in suffering. He has a design. I pray that he would give us eyes of faith to see that, to display the works in his own son's suffering and that our, that our hearts and that our children's, we would see, especially as we looked at the cross, we would see that in our life, suffering is tokened of his love. They are. They're temporary, but they're tokens. We'll end with this. Because that's true, because Jesus suffered for us, we're going here. Every word of this is true. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from her God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It will be true. pray this morning that your soul would find grace as you think of there. Y'all, here's the biggest mistake that we made. This is not our home. This is not it. We would have the saddest lots of any human beings if this were it. We are headed to that. And it doesn't have an end. Forevermore, we will be with the Lord and the Father and the Spirit and those who have gone before us, we will never say goodbye again. Sufferings in this life are light and momentary in light of eternity. Your God has a purpose in everything that he does. And I pray that he would whisper through this text to you this morning. Wait until you you can't even begin to imagine the glory that awaits, freedom from sin forevermore. It's coming, brothers and sisters. He promised it's coming. He rose so that it would be coming. May you and I find grace in the truths of those realities as we finish our pilgrim days here. Heavenly Father,
um, you would have to be God to come up with a gospel like this because to come up with something like this, you have to first be able to imagine it and nobody could. It's true. It's true. I pray this morning, those that are, that are limping, I pray that they would get a strange sense of the God who sings and rejoices and delights over them even right now as the beloved. Now, that wasn't done because I'm angry at you. I gave you that because I love you. Father, you're gonna have to produce that in us because we can't. We pray that you would in Jesus' name.